Good morning, church. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3. Our text today will be Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Malachi marks the last prophetic voice before the coming of the Messiah. After Malachi, it would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness that would break the 400 years of silence between the close of the Old Testament canon and the birth of Christ. This is the text we are in today. This is the book we are going through. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of the prophets. We thank you for the gospel that has been proclaimed since the very beginning when you called light forth out of darkness and spoke the very creation into existence. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit indwelling your people, illuminate this word, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move on the hearts of men Break through the hardness. Convict us, God, of our sin, that we would be a people humbled before you, crying out for repentance, that you would hear and heal our land, that your church in the earth would be a glorious witness to Christ and his gospel, a church that is victorious because Christ has promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for Christ and pray that you would be glorified through your people, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Malachi 3.1 provides the answer to the question that we raised or that was raised in Malachi 2.17 by the unbelieving Jews. And the question was this, where is the God of justice? Remember the accusations the Jews made against God in which they had impugned the very character of God, saying of God, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They saw the wicked prospering, but they would not acknowledge their own sin, and so they would not seek 
the blessing of God through humble repentance. Instead, they rebelliously join themselves to the unbelieving nations, seeking the blessing of the false gods and the idols that the other nations were serving. They ask the question, where is the God of justice? And the Lord answers that question beginning here in Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God knows all things. He hears the murmuring and the complaining and false accusations leveled against him, and he will answer those in his time and in his way. God will send his messenger, and he will prepare the way before the Lord. That messenger that shall go before the Lord is John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Malachi echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah, who is quoted in all four gospel records, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Those words are referring to John the Baptist. Those are words from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Luke's gospel in Luke 3, 4 through 6 quotes the fuller text from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, saying, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Malachi is declaring that Christ, the messenger of the covenant, is coming. The way will be prepared for him by God's messenger who will go before him. And when Christ comes, Isaiah paints a word picture of that prepared way, calling it a straight highway in the desert for our God. To make that straight highway, Isaiah writes that every valley shall be exalted or filled in, and every mountain or hill shall be brought low, that a level way is made. The crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places will be made smooth. Think of an unbroken expressway or interstate highway with no stops, no detours, only unhindered forward progress. That is the way prepared for the gospel to go forth. And it is still going forth today. In fact, it's how we came to be here today. And it will continue to go forth powerfully to save and to transform and to accomplish every purpose of God until the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the entire earth as the waters cover the sea. God's unhindered progress does not look like what we might imagine it should look like. I want you to consider for a moment Joseph. Remember Joseph from the Old Testament? The son of Jacob, who was despised by all of his other brothers. They were jealous of him because he was loved by Jacob given the coat of many colors, considered that Joseph's progress to save the world was unhindered 
when he was mercilessly sold into slavery by his murderous brothers, though he nor they could see it, God had prepared an express way to the very throne of Egypt that would result in the salvation of the world. Besides the food that was provided for millions, the seed of the Savior was preserved in Judah to ultimately come forth for the salvation of the world. All these generations later, down to our very generation today, are still benefactors, and that benefit will continue for generations to come even until the day of Jesus Christ. This is why we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Trust God. He has prepared a way not only for the Savior, but for you and for me and for all of his people. He is faithful. He cannot fail. Though the mountains be carried into the sea, he is our immovable rock. He is our refuge. Trust and obey him. Live to glorify him as you reflect his very life given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Once the way is prepared, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The Jews in Malachi's day had rebuilt the temple. This rebuilt temple was the second temple in what was later called Herod's temple. Herod renovated and enlarged the original second temple of Malachi's day. It is to this second temple that Jesus suddenly came. First as an infant carried in the arms of his, mo his mother Mary, later as a boy of 12 years old, sitting there teaching the religious leaders who were amazed by his wisdom at age 12, and still later in his ministry he walked into this temple which it was and is his house, to cleanse it and proclaim it a house of prayer for all nations. That is still what his house is today, a house of worship and prayer to offer up spiritual and living sacrifices to God. His house, though, is not a house made with hands from dead stones that will one day be erected in the city of Jerusalem. His house is made without hands, from living stones being built up a spiritual house that also is the holy Jerusalem that will one day descend from heaven to earth. The Apostle Paul writes that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In John 2, 20 through 22, Jesus proclaimed himself the temple that would be torn down and rebuilt in three days. He was speaking of his body. The church is called the bride of the Lamb. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is our bridegroom. He is the head. We are the body. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. You are God's temple. You are his holy house. Yes, Jesus came into the temple in Jerusalem in his earthly life and ministry. He also oversaw from heaven its destruction in 70 A.D., he destroyed the type and the shadow because the substance who is Christ has, has come. It's here. We don't need a shadow anymore. He is the substance that is here. His promise 
is that he is with us, tabernacling with us, indwelling us by the Holy Spirit. And the promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Christian, do you believe this? He is the resurrected third and final temple, and you are the place his name will dwell forever if you belong to Jesus. The Bible tells us so. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah the Jews were waiting and longing for. Christ is the messenger of the new covenant. Malachi proclaimed his coming. The Jews were anxious for Messiah to come, but they misunderstood his true identity and the nature of his coming. They were anxious for a Messiah they had created in their own image from their own vain imaginations. The Bible says that you are created in the image of God, but what we very often do is create a God in our image that we choose to worship. That's wrong. That's backwards. The irony in the declaration of his coming is found in the question, where is the God of justice? The answer is, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Yet the people misunderstood what that would mean for them. They also misunderstood when he actually came four centuries later. When Christ came, they rejected him, and so they rejected the very Messiah they professed to delight in. Many rejected Jesus because he did not fit their idea of a Messiah. Many still reject Jesus or falsely accept him because they are accepting a God of their own imagination and not the God given to us through the inspired Word of God. Still today, many reject Him and misunderstand Him and His coming. And it seems men still look for a Savior fashioned from their own imaginations and carnal desires. We live in a day when many are calling evil good and good evil. Many today seem to believe that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. In much of the church today, love has become permissiveness and holiness is called legalism. We know that is not true and we know that God will not be mocked. So while men celebrate their own sin and the lust of the flesh, they question where is the God of justice? The question implies they wanted the God of justice to execute his judgment on the wickedness of others, but not on their own wickedness that they refused to acknowledge. This reveals a completely carnal understanding or misunderstanding of the messenger of the covenant who is coming. Your revelation of Christ must be from the Holy Spirit and not from the carnal mind. Romans 8, verses 6 through 7. Paul writes, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. The mind set on the flesh is enmity against God, Paul writes. We will never know the Lord from a carnal or fleshly understanding of him. 
The mind set on the flesh, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. Christ and all we have in him transcends our carnal mind, our temporal realities of life, the life we now live in the flesh. All that we have in Christ transcends that. In Christ, we experience all the blessings of this life, yet all we have in Christ far exceeds any carnal understanding or desire we could possibly possess here and now. We can imagine, and we do imagine, all the things that if we had them, if we could rub the genie's bottle and get the three wishes we want, if we could win the lottery and get the millions that I want, I would be set. I would have everything I would need. No, you would not. You could gain the whole world and still lose your soul, and you have nothing. But from our carnal, fleshly minds, that's not how we think. That's not how we understand life. In Christ, we do experience blessing in this life. Yet the blessing we have in Christ far transcends any blessing we could ever experience in this life, even if it was everything we could imagine. Listen carefully to the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10. Paul writes, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The things which God has prepared for those who love him are the things that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have they entered into the heart of man. Think about that for just a moment. You cannot see it, you cannot hear it, and your heart and your mind cannot imagine it. Yet God has prepared these unimaginable things for you in Christ. Not only that, he has revealed them to us by his Spirit. God revealing them by His Spirit does not mean that we will now see them all and hear them all and imagine them all in our mind's eye. It's not that we're going to be able to see and hear and know all that He has prepared for us, but what it does mean is that we now have the assurance of knowing that God, who did not spare His own Son, has freely given us all things in Christ. We cannot fully see and hear and comprehend all that he has freely given us, but we can see Jesus as revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. By faith, we see Jesus as we are looking unto him as the author and the finisher of our faith. We see Jesus 
who suffered on our behalf, crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus, who is the ascended Lord of lords and King of kings. We see Jesus, who is now supremely ruling and reigning over all things. We see Jesus. Tell me, church, who or what greater could we possibly see or receive? There is none. Christ alone is our sufficiency. But God has not given us Christ alone, but has freely given us all things with Him. Now in Christ, through faith, we have the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. More importantly, we have been saved by His grace through faith and are now justified and made righteous in Christ given the very life of our resurrected Lord and Savior. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And when He comes, what will He find? Jesus asked the question recorded in Luke 8, 18. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? If the Son of Man came now, would He find faith on the earth? Well, that's an important question. But an even more important and pressing question would be whether he would find faith in your heart. Behold, he is coming. What will he find when he comes? When he comes, he will prove what he finds, and he will prove it in the refiner's fire. Malachi 3 verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when, it appear, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He is coming for judgment and for justice. The Jews wanted him to come for judgment on all of their enemies. But they did not realize that they themselves were enemies of God through their sinful unbelief, rebellion, and idolatry. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one can endure the day of his coming, and no one can stand when he appears. No one, that is, except those to which he extends his grace. No one except those of his own choosing, according to the good pleasure of his will. His free, unmerited grace has been extended to us for no reason except that God chose to extend it. That grace should cause us to fear and tremble. For we have received His saving grace for absolutely no other reason than He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We will endure and stand in that day because His love for us is perfect and complete. Listen to the words of the Apostle John in his first letter. John, 1 John 4, 17-19 Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love Him because He first loved us. There is nothing whatsoever in and of ourselves that will enable us to stand in that day. We will stand by grace in the perfect love Christ has for us, or we will not stand at all. We deserve 
the wrath of God, but in Christ we have received the loving grace of God. For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. The refiner's fire and the launderer's soap removes the impurities from those things that are subject to their purifying process. The Lord comes to subject all to the fiery test of his heart-searching truth. He refines and separates the godly from the ungodly. We all undergo the Lord's graceful process of being in the crucible to have our impurities removed by the refiner's purifying fire. It is not pleasant, but it is necessary as it proves our value to the Lord and his love for us. We will all go through it. You may be going through it right now. And if you are not, then you can look forward to it. Because if God loves you, he will take you through the crucible and he will refine from you those impurities that he wants to remove from you so that you become as refined, precious silver and gold. Prepared to become the vessel of honor that he has chosen for you to be. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier. This is an amazing picture that Malachi paints of the Lord sitting as a refiner and a purifier. The sin of Judah is not dealt with by simply sending the sword to devour this rebellious people. Instead, Malachi pictures the Lord as a refiner, as a purifier, sitting and doing his work of removing the dross from that which is precious to finally reveal the beauty and the value of his special treasure. The refiner would put the silver into the crucible and apply the fire to heat it and cause the impurities to float to the top and separate from the silver. As the impurities would float to the top, they were skimmed off. This process continued until the refiner's fire had done its purifying work of removing the impurities and leaving the precious refined silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, remember the Lord addressed the priest who had despised his name by offering defiled food on his altar. The priesthood came from the sons of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. The priesthood had become corrupted in Malachi's day, and the Lord was going to purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. The Lord was doing this refining work that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. The altar of the Lord would no longer be defiled by polluted offerings. The name of the Lord would no longer be held in contempt. And the worship of the Lord would be restored to worship in spirit and truth. Where it had been marked by corruption and lust of the flesh, it would now be marked as an acceptable and righteous offering. Offered to the Lord. As the priesthood is restored to right standing with the Lord, the priest could now offer 
an acceptable offering and righteousness to the Lord. This picture of the priesthood offering to the Lord an offering in righteousness applies to us today in Christ. For in Christ, every believer is a priest unto God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are called a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Peter also writes that we are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. John writes in the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests to our God and Father, Revelation 1, 6. That which we offer up to the Lord in worship is to be an offering to the Lord in righteousness. That begs the question as to what we are offering to the Lord. Paul gives us the answer in Romans 12, 1. We're not offering animals any longer. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. We now present our bodies, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our reasonable act of worship. We are the ascension or the burnt offering being wholly consumed and offered to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. You do this each week as you assemble for worship. In fact, you are being prepared even now as the Word of God is the butcher's knife that is breaking you down, dividing joint and marrow, and placing you in order on the altar to be consumed by His holy fire, This is your worship. This is his refining work. This is the glorious work of the Spirit preparing you to ascend to the very throne of grace. Malachi 3, 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then the offering of the entire nation will be pleasant to the Lord. In purifying the priesthood, they would in turn instruct the people and refuse to allow polluted or defiled offerings from reaching the Lord's altar. The same is true today in the church. The elders, who are the shepherds and pastors to you under Christ, are to first be an example to you. We are responsible to God to watch over your soul, to equip you for the work of ministry, and to instruct you in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. If the shepherds are shepherding according to the Word of God under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Lord's flock will generally be spiritually healthy, and the offerings that we offer to the Lord will be acceptable in His sight. Malachi 3.4 harkens back to the former years. Those years before Israel was divided, before they sunk into idolatry and subsequent judgment. It also points us forward to a time when Christ would reconcile the world to God and create in himself one new man from both Jew and Gentile who would be kings and priests to God, offering up spiritual worship to God in righteousness. God will guard his beloved, his bride, the church, who is his holy Jerusalem, He will watch over her to purify her, to protect her, and to prepare her for adornment as the glorious bride who is central in his new creation in the new heaven and new earth. 
The bride is to make herself ready, John writes in Revelation 19.7. That looks like each of us working out our own salvation with fear and trembling as it is God who works in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. In other words, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but you're not working alone. God is working in you according to His will and good pleasure. That also looks like the corporate body coming together in worship each week, that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known by the church to powers and principalities In heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. This is the offering of the new Jerusalem that is pleasant to the Lord. This is the acceptable worship of our God and Father in spirit and truth. This is the church continually offering up the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Malachi 3 verse 5. And I will come near for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Again, God is answering the question that was sinfully offered to him. Where is the God of justice? He will come near you for judgment. You will not be able to miss him, in fact. You will certainly know where he is, and he is indeed coming for judgment, not just on the heathen, but on his own house, first and foremost, on his own people. He, is not, he not only will come near, but he will be a swift witness, Malachi writes. Then he lists specific things he will be a swift witness against. And all these were sins that Judah was deeply involved in at the time. And it's not accidental that we see the same sins in the church today against sorcerers. The Jews had learned and dabbled in the magic arts during their time in captivity in Babylon. And God forbade his people from involving themselves with sorcery or witchcraft, Deuteronomy 18.10. That is still a sin for God's people. Sorcery is listed as a work of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. And God is a swift witness against sorcerers. You have the Holy Spirit. Your involvement seeking unholy spirits is sinful and dangerous as you may open doors you would never want open. Against adulterers. The Jews in Malachi's day had gone after foreign wives who worshipped foreign gods. They abandoned their Jewish wives and committed adultery against the Lord, defiling their marriages and defiling their worship. God would be a swift witness against this marital and spiritual adultery. For marriage is holy and sacred, giving witness to the mystery of Christ and his church. That was true in Malachi's day, just as it is in our day. Today, the defilement of marriage is a defilement of that holy institution the Lord established for His glory. Marriage is meant to glorify and honor Christ, not dishonor Him by honoring and glorifying sin. The church must take a strong stand to protect the sanctity of marriage, and that witness of its sanctity must begin in the church before it can be known outside the church. Against perjurers. This refers to those who were swearing false oaths by the name of the Lord. This is forbidden by God, 
and recorded in the law in Leviticus 19.12. It is also prohibited in the New Testament as recorded in James 5.12. Our words are to be meaningful. In other words, our words mean something. The flippant use of our words or promises that we make are not to be taken lightly. The words of Jesus are worth noting here, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your eyes be, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, God takes seriously the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable. The exploitation of the weak by the powerful is something that God does not suffer. He makes it very clear in his word that he will require a reckoning for those who exploit the powerless. In Matthew 23, 14, Jesus proclaimed woe to the Pharisees who devour widows' houses but present themselves as holier than thou for show in public. In James 5, 4, James writes that the cries of the defrauded laborers will have reached the ears of the Lord of armies, implying that God will defend the defenseless against those who turn away an alien. This is the defrauding of the foreigner because he is a foreigner, an easy target to take advantage of. An example would be an unjust civil ruling simply because it could be easy to get away with while profiting off an alien or a foreigner. If you've ever been to Mexico, you might have experienced this. When they confiscated our bus on a mission trip, the only way we could get it back was to go to prison or, guess what? If you pay me some money, I'll give you your bus back. That is the sin that God is talking about here, taking advantage of those foreigners because they're easy prey. Why? Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. These sins were rampant because the people did not fear the Lord. We can see in our own culture today, and sadly in the church, there is no fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is not much wisdom and there is not much fear of the Lord. The, we, the church, are called to be different. We are not to be like the world. If no one else will, we are called to take a stand for righteousness. Our prayer should be that the fear of the Lord be restored to His church. Then perhaps we would find ourselves humbled before the Lord, seeking His face, turning from our sin in repentance. And then perhaps God would hear from heaven and He would heal our land. Malachi 3.6, our last verse. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. For I am the Lord, I do not change, is a direct response to the accusation of Malachi 2.17. Where is the God of justice? God seems to delight in those who are evil, calling them good, approving of their 
evil behavior. God is proclaiming here his unchanging nature and character. James affirms this by declaring that there is no variableness nor shadow of turning in God. James 1.27 God remembers his word. He is faithful to his promise and to his covenant. He does not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God calls them sons of Jacob here to remind them. The time between Jacob and his 12 sons living together and the time of the prophet Malachi spans 1,400 years. God is calling them back 1,400 years, calling them to remembrance by referring to the people of Judah as the sons of Jacob. The Lord is calling to mind the covenant promises made with Jacob and his sons, which came from Isaac, which came from Abraham. And those promises, reminding them that those promises were still in force. Therefore, you are not consumed, not because you don't deserve to be consumed, but because I am the God who does not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. God remembers his promises. He is not only graceful, but he is faithful to keep his word. And God has made promises to you and to me in Christ. God is not a man that he should lie. He is faithful. He calls us to faithfulness just as he is faithful. But we are frail and we are prone to wonder and we are prone to fall out of faithfulness. But not our God. Our faithfulness wavers, but not the faithfulness of God. He is steadfast and ever faithful to perform his word and to keep his promises. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by by no means pass away. Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah in 1 Peter 1.25 saying, The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Look to God, trust in his word, obey all that he commands. And when you fail, repent and get back up and keep pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. For God has made you a king and a priest unto him, to minister to him, to be a witness to him among the nations, a bright light in this world, salt that preserves, light that dispels darkness. That is who you are in Christ. That is what we have called to be. That is what we are called to be. That is our commission. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. If you have been baptized in the name of the triune God, and you are a member of God's covenant family, Whether you count Christ's fellowship, your church, body, you are welcome to this table. Come to the table. We will eat his bread and drink his wine. We will all be served and we will all eat and drink together to be renewed so that you can go out refreshed, empowered to fulfill fulfill the commission that he has given to each and every one of us. Christian, welcome to the table. Welcome to Jesus. Please stand for your charge.
The Jews of Malachi's day asked the question, where is the God of justice? They accused God of delighting in evil, approving of those who practice wickedness. It is easy to ask sometimes in the world that we live in, where is the God of justice? But don't do that. For you are to know exactly where the God of justice is. He is firmly ruling on his throne, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, ruling over all. And he is coming. And so we are to live in a manner that declares that truth, that we know where the God of justice is. We know that he is coming We know that he tabernacles among us right now by the spirit that dwells within us and that we are to be salt and light in this world and that we are to be his people advancing his kingdom, praying and working to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let us sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.